Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. A podcast devoted to the exploration of all things mystical, philosophical, scientific, political, conspiratorial, and cosmic. Join us in an exploration of the Mystic Skeptic Mindspace. In this week's show, our guest is Ryan Radigan, a former host of the Mystic Skeptic podcast. He's also an attorney, activist, and naturalist. We will explore his involvement with the movement to reclaim nature and protect it from corporations. Please, Ryan, share with us how you got involved with the original protest in North Dakota, supporting the Sioux tribe in the last couple of months. Well, it, it really began with social media, and, and that's how a lot of people found out about what was going on in, in, uh, at Standing Rock in, in North Dakota. Um, I had a, a few friends who were involved in the uh, Keystone, uh, Keystone Pipeline fight in Nebraska, uh, and they were involved with a group called Bull Nebraska, and they were sending up they were sending up supplies. They were also involved in building some structures at the camp. So uh, my connections with them uh, brought me up to Standing Rock. I, I went up there to uh, I established contact with the uh, the uh, legal team up there, and I was going to be acting as a legal observer uh, during the protest uh, to make sure that uh, people's uh, rights weren't violated to record any incidents between uh, officers or law enforcement officials and uh, the protectors. So uh, I arrived the first part of December, and um, so we arrived Friday, and uh, that, that following Sunday is when the Army Corps announced that they were going to grant the easement. So after that, my legal services uh, weren't as necessary as they were before, uh, but I did end up of staying around up there for for uh, about the rest of the month, the rest of the month of December. Um, so yeah, I was up there uh, not a full month, but uh, almost a full month. So my experience at camp was uh, was like a lot of other people's experience. It was very powerful. Um, it was uh, also a very spiritual place. Um, <clears throat> when I went up there, there was about uh, anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand thousand people up there and uh the camp was was uh pretty pretty incredible to see and witness and experience uh, uh they had a number of large supply tents uh plenty of food plenty of uh supplies plenty of wood plenty of fuel anybody who's looked at videos or who's watched videos or looked at photos or read anything about the camp knows that that it was extremely cold up there uh, during the month of december uh, that was that was uh, one thing that made it made it challenging. Uh, <clears throat> when I was up there, the first few days that we were up there was when all the veterans were coming in, and they were coming in by the busload. Um, and I think I think that the veterans coming played a part in the Army Corps' decision. I know it wasn't the whole part, but uh, I think I think the media that would have been associated with large numbers of veterans coming up there uh, played a part of their decision to to uh, not grant the easement. I I partook in a couple of the uh, the marches or the walks to to the, uh, the the front line kind of on the bridge. Uh, the days that I was there, there was a number of military vehicles and law enforcement officials present, but they were they were further back from the bridge. Um, they basically had a an overlook set up on a higher hill above the camp. And the whole time that I was there, there were drones flying over and also 
also helicopters. Uh, so they were they were surveying the situation uh, every day. Um, I, I I also when I was at the the march in D.C. I had a chance to speak with a couple people that I met there who had been there for for most of the uh, for most of the camp it started in April and. As as some people may know, it ended just uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, but they shared with me that, that they knew a number of, of people who were uh, basically involved in law enforcement who had infiltrated the camp and were acting as as uh, informants uh, for the different agencies involved. So yeah, it was a pretty pretty intense experience. The camp uh, from the very beginning was established as a peaceful prayer camp or a spiritual camp. And uh, it, it certainly had that energy and vibe. Uh, everybody was very kind to each other, very peaceful. Um, every morning while I was up there, they had uh, ceremonies. They had they had a fire fire ceremony, a sunrise ceremony in the morning. The men led that, and then after the sunrise ceremony, the women led a water ceremony. And we would proceed from the fire ceremony to the edge of the river, the Cannonball River, and offer uh, offer prayers. Uh, tobacco and other things to the river. Um, so prayer, prayer was a big part of the camp, and um, uh, being peaceful and spiritual with each other was also a, a big part of it. <laughs> so it had a different. I, I haven't been involved in in any uh, big actions like this. Uh, nothing like this, as far as I know, has ever occurred. So it, it was interesting that the 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 focus was to remain uh, spiritual and peaceful. Which I think is the the most one of the most effective ways to to deal with these things and, and not returning fire with fire or playing their playing their game. I met quite a few interesting people up there. <clears throat> what, I, what I came to learn, what I came to realize uh, after discussing everything with a few people up there and um, and discussing it with people afterwards and at the march. And also listening to the the speeches and and um, all the stuff that's been posted on Facebook, all the videos and and all that, it's it's become clear to me that this movement is about more than just the pipeline. Um, it's about uh, protecting protecting our water, protecting our earth, um, and uh, you know ultimately protecting this earth for future generations. Um, it's also the movement. The movement is also um, also plays into a larger movement within different indigenous native tribes within this country to reclaim to reclaim their their national sovereignty. Uh, the different reservations within this country are are considered uh, their own sovereign nations within the sovereign nation of the United States of America, and uh, over the years they've become. They've become really dependent on the federal government and also um, controlled in a lot of ways by the federal government. This should come as no surprise to anybody who's familiar with the history of, of the reservations. So there's movement within the different tribes and uh, to reclaim their sovereignty, to exercise more uh, control over their own nations, and to uh, limit their dependence on the federal government. Uh, so this standing rock brought all those different interests together. So you have you have the people who are interested in, the indigenous people who are interested in uh, attaining and maintaining their sovereignty. You have people who are concerned about uh, the water and the environment. And you have people who um, are against 
are against the, the continuous efforts by corporations to extract and exploit uh, by all means. So, <clears throat> so this this Standing Rock uh, for the first at, at at the camp for the first time in I think over 150 years, uh, all the uh, many of if not all of the tribes that exist within this country and and tribes and indigenous peoples from other parts of the world uh, came and assembled and met at, at Standing Rock, um, and they're united in, in this fight. So it's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty historical moment. It's it's just the beginning. I think we're going to see more and more of this type of, of these type of actions in the coming years. Did you uh, witness any leadership, um, specific leaders? Uh, one of the struggles with the um, uh, Occupy movement and with the Black Lives Matters movement is that it's not centralized. That there's many people speaking their mind. There's many people organizing. In this uh, situation, since there is chiefs and there's elders, were there people who are taking an active role in leading the spiritual activities and the protest itself, or was it an organic process where everybody kind of fell in, into their particular role as trying to move forward with this movement? I, I could see that as an as an issue, but I but I think that what's interesting is that that's I think that's kind of a strength in some ways because these movements. Are are essentially fighting against centralization of control, um, and the 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 political philosophy of a lot of the, a lot of the people that are involved in these movements is is one of non centralization. So at camp, for example, every morning, um, every morning while I was up there, and this was ongoing before I came, and and, and well after I, I left, they had a community meeting, and anybody was welcome to attend. And at those meetings, they discussed. Um, certain events on camp, they they organized made plans for the day. They brought up concerns, and and teams were made to uh, address those concerns. It was all, all very open, very laissez-faire, uh, and it was non-centralized. There was no centralized authority. Uh, there weren't any votes. Um, any type of any type of action that you were involved in was a was a, was a voluntary action, and uh, so it was a very very organic way of, of of organizing and and getting getting things done, which which was very impressive when you consider how many people were up there in the conditions that they were uh, living living in, uh, specifically with respect to the uh, the the climate and the the cold weather. So the other thing is is that with civilization, yeah, you might you might get a more coherent message, but um, a lot of these things can't really be I, I don't think there's a way to to centralize them because if you do that then you have to when you when you begin that process then you have to make you have to, somebody has to make a decision as to what's included and what's not included and then how whatever isn't included is is spoke is you know how it's how it's communicated and, and all of that so um, I don't see I don't see these these groups becoming centralized. I do know that they work together and that they do, and that they do communicate with each other. So it's, um, but there's no, there's no centralized hierarchy or, or, or governing authority or, or any type of body that's saying, this is our message. This isn't our message. There's some, uh, some positive aspects related to the non-centralized nature of the movement in my mind anyway. 
When you were there in December, what was the political climate around these events? Just to, to get clear, like, can you explain a little bit about what's what are the the legal terms that you mentioned earlier? What is it that the Corps of Engineers decided to do, and how is that being flipped now that we have the new president in the White House? Okay, well, um, the political climate at camp is that I mean, everybody was everybody most people that I I can't I don't know if I can say everybody because I didn't speak with everybody. Every, the most people that I spoke with were disappointed in Trump's election. They, a lot of people thought that vision was going to be reversed after Trump came into office, and that turned out to be the case. Um, when they announced when they announced the uh, the decision not to grant the easement, there was one group within the the uh, within Standing Rock, the Standing Rock tribe, who who requested that anybody who wasn't not native to the region to leave, and there was another group. That was also involved in the Standing Rock tribe, and who had who were elders that had been at the camp from the very beginning, who were telling people to stay. And what they told me is that what they shared with a lot of us is that they believe that the decision would be reversed. They 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 have a long history of being lied to by the government, and they were basically saying, "Hey guys, this fight isn't over. Like this is a victory, but this fight is not is long from over." And then with with Trump's inauguration on the horizon. A lot of people were were thinking that this that the decision was was going to be reversed, so that was kind of the political climate. Um, as far as 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 Trump goes with with ongoing efforts, obviously his his rhetoric and his policies indicate that it's it's going to be a lot more difficult under a Trump presidency and a Trump administration. But in some ways, I think that that helps to keep people more active and and more awake. So. That there's a bit of a silver lining to that, I suppose. Is it because the the Democratic Party kind of muddles the issue? Like they pretend to be pro Earth, pro liberal causes, and then they're really centrist, and they just they end up cutting out a lot of deals. And now that there's a president who's very open about his biases and his deals and his carelessness, then now people can actually stop the infighting and just focus on getting to the goal? Yeah, I think I think when you have a, a, a popular foe, it, it does allow for bringing interests together and bringing people together. So uh, there is definitely that aspect with the Trump presidency. One thing that interests me over the last eight years during the Obama administration was how a lot of my Democratic friends seemed like ghosts on Facebook and and, and in other areas. As, as compared to when Bush was in office, they were they were highly active. Uh, they were protesting in the streets. They were posting stuff about the different wars that we were involved in. They were posting stuff related to concerns about the encroachments of the the security state, uh, the violation of civil liberties with respect to uh, surveillance, all these types of things. Well, what was interesting is, and, and this is obviously not this is this is a generalization. This doesn't apply to all Democrats, obviously, but during. During Obama's administration, it was a lot of silence, and it seemed like they were sleeping because every, they thought everything was okay because they had a Democrat in office. And and that's as we know, that's not the case. Many of many of the policies of the Obama administration were just carryovers from the Bush administration. And with respect to foreign policy and and surveillance and uh, the national security state, nothing really changed during Obama's presidency. There is a certain amount of good associated with. And I know this sounds somewhat crazy, 
opportunity, but there is a certain amount of good associated with Trump being in office because the people who are normally more politically politically active within the Democratic Party more so now because they know they have to be vigilant. With Trump in office, you know, that does help to, to kind of galvanize action and, and get people, keep people tuned in, basically. And then with respect to the Democratic Party, you know, what we have to realize is, is that there's still a party. There's still, within within politics, I believe that the, the number one concern of both parties is to win. And they're going to do whatever they whatever they think is necessary to win. And if that means throwing their support behind the indigenous sovereignty movement or or uh, the anti-pipeline movements or, or whatever else, they will do that. Whether that support remains after they get in office, it's an entirely different matter. You know, a lot of these... Let's talk about that. What, what were uh, Obama's policies towards the Native Americans? I remember somebody reporting that there was this touching moment where him and his wife went to one of the tribes and they spent time with a little boy and and... They were nowhere to be heard of during the protests. And then the this issue about, well, it's great that we can get everybody mobilized, but once certain people are in power, it's very difficult to get them out. And then you have to use the democratic means to do that. So then you have to go to democratic representatives that are not that pure in their intentions. So we're back at the same place where we were b before all this happened. Yeah, this is very true. <laughs> This is what. So, so what was what was Obama's? Um, you know, was he jumping on the Native American bandwagon when he was trying to get elected and went in and spent time with them to look good on on that front? And then once they needed him, he he bailed out. Or? Yeah, I, I, as as much as I hate to say that, I think that's probably the case. And it, 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 there's no way of knowing for sure what what uh, Obama really thinks about all this. So they have they. <laughs> They're they're controlled by their by their handlers as to what they say and when they say it. So um, who knows for sure what Obama really thinks? I'd like to think that he is behind the indigenous efforts, but because of the nature of position of his position and the the amount of control that the handlers do have, he's limited in what he can say and how he says it. If if that's not the case, then 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 it's just well he's he's just doing it for to score some political points, and I think. I think it's pro the the truth is probably somewhere in, in between those two extremes, uh, but yeah, like you said, that's the nature of our political system. Um, our representative system was designed for an agricultural people, um, a rural agricultural people, who developed a representative system uh, that would meet in session a couple times a year, and and uh, you know provide for their self-governance. Uh, the, the proportions of representatives to the population is, is skewed completely as compared to what it used to be. And that combined with the corporate takeover of government has left us in a situation where we think we live in a representative republic or a democracy, uh, but instead we actually live in a um, fascist oligopic uh, corporatocracy. So um, I don't know... What the answer to that is, <clears throat> I have my own views on that. Um, it, what I think what we're realizing more and more as a people is that is that is that we don't have any control over what goes on in government. Every once in a while, we'll have small victories, but for the most 
most part, all the laws, all the policies are drafted by special interest groups, corporations, um, and, and the, the representatives are in their pockets. And that occurs on both sides of the aisle, both, side, both, both ends of the political spectrum. So it's, an, it's a problem. It's not. Let's, let's go back, uh, you know, 40 years. And let's say that in a sense it was very similar with, um, you know, good old boy system uh, in the 60s, uh, 50 years. Um, you know, the, the world was run by, by big companies and, and, and good old boy system and the government. And the different civil rights uh, leaders, they decided that the only way they could bring about change was to put it out there in the eyes of the media, and then that would be broadcasted to the rest of the world, and then the U.S. would be pressured to pass laws that would be more um, just and more compassionate towards the population that was being affected by racism. Do you think that um, any of the um, things that happened, I think it happened before you got there, where people were attacked by dogs, where contractors and the local police were abusing the protesters, do you think any of that had any impact on the way that uh, America is viewed around the world? And it, and does, does it have the effect that it did back in the day, or are people kind of jaded with the victimhood aspect of different people? Well, I think it confirmed, for people around the world, I think it confirmed what a lot of people already know about our country and, and, and about the abuses that our, that our officers get away with um, on a daily basis. Um, I think that what we suffer from as a current society in, a, uh, in this day and age is that we're desensitized. Um, we are, we're, we're, ex we're exposed to all kinds of crap on television, all kinds of violence in movies. Young children are playing these violent video games. And, and, and that does have an impact, and that does desensitize people. So, And the thing is, is that this type of stuff has been going on throughout my entire life. I'm 33 years old, and I can remember I don't every year in my life that I've paid attention or been old enough to pay attention and know what's going on. Every year there's always a news story about these types of uh, violent altercations between officers and, and the public. And and officers who who routinely get away with it, um, and it's become a part of. We we had a we talked about this on one of our shows a couple years ago uh, about um, police brutality and and um, the the culture that's developed within the military and and uh, law enforcement, um, which is uh, you know just these officers getting away with. Uh, indiscretions and, and violence and and um, that that type of behavior just becoming a part of their their culture and it just it just got extended into it got extended into standing rock and and the people on these tribes uh, deal with it quite a bit especially in uh, the surrounding communities the communities that surround the tribes um, so if you're a minority you know this this type of stuff happens to everybody majority and minority, but if you're a minority, it happens more, and um, the the officers tend to get away with it more uh, when it's a minority, so. You know how white liberals are often uh, criticized by conservatives as, oh, they got, um, you know, guilt, and they have um, whatever, um, 
they want to be Native Americans, they have identity issues or whatever. So the the first part of my question is, um, we've seen you know, in the Selma movie, it wasn't until the white liberals came down and were part of the protest that the violence stopped and they were taken seriously because nobody wants to see people that look like them being attacked by the police. So having white liberals involved in this um, protest uh, could be helpful. But also, you and I have talked before about identifying um, ourselves with minority groups who have been persecuted and uh, mistreated throughout the centuries. So what made you feel compelled to get involved in this cause? And did it have anything to do with having some type of uh, fascination or interest in, in the Native American community? Well, I've always been interested in indigenous culture and, and the uh, Native Americans within this country. Um, so I, I, I suppose my interest to, uh, is related to that. As far as as far as it goes with the quote unquote light white liberals, um, I don't associate. I don't. I don't have any guilt. Um, I, I I had nothing to do with the, the, anything that happened to the, the indigenous peoples of this country, um, and and nobody that's living today had anything to do with it. So I don't have any guilt because it's I had no part of it. Um, so I think we need to get rid of the guilt factor. No, they don't want us to to feel guilty. They want us to. They want us to support them and to understand and to and to uh, to help in whatever way we can um, to help them. So, and as far as, as I know, I know that there was concerns. There was a few people on Facebook and some others that were writing articles about um, this concern about the, the whites coming in and trying to become Indian or whatever else. Maybe, maybe, maybe for some people that was the case but let's be honest there's there's a lot of things that that are attractive about their culture um they they as far as a, as a people are concerned are the most they've had the less the less time separated from a natural way of living so for them it's been 500 years uh, you know 500 years since they were living uh, naturally and, and in harmony with their environment for european people of european descent or or uh, uh, more most or any other descent throughout most of the world, you know, we've been separated from that type of living for thousands of years, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And there are still pockets of people that live a more natural, natural lifestyle, but, but nothing, but no other groups within the States that, that had, that um, had that experience as, as short, you know, as, as uh, relatively recent as 500 years. I know that sounds like a long period of time, but, it's really not. So um, there's. I think people are attracted to that, and anybody who's aware of the of the history uh, of uh, what was done to the indigenous people in this country, uh, I think would be more are, are more than happy to show support in any way that they can. And so I think that was a part of it as well. For me, the other the other interest that I had was was learning more about the uh, the sovereignty movement within within the indigenous uh, nations. Um, I'm interested in in how that that could extend to a larger percentage of the population and, and possibly lead to uh, people withdrawing their consent from our current form of government. 
government, but that's an entirely different, <laughs> that's an entirely different thing. But what's interesting is, is that the, the native, the indigenous people who are involved in this, they understand sovereignty. Um, if you were to, if you were to go up to most American people or American citizens or citizens of other uh, nation states and, and you were to ask them, what is sovereignty? Uh, most people would not even know what the hell you're talking about. So, um, but but within the indigenous, uh, within these groups that are leading this effort and this movement, they understand it completely, and they have the the knowledge and the um, and the quote unquote rhetoric to you know actually make it a, a real possibility. And basically. It, one of the most important things in relation to sovereignty is is that you as a community or you as an individual are able to establish um, a type of living that, that allows you to be as self-sufficient as possible. So in, in today's age, that's pretty foreign. We all, all the major city centers within this country and in large nation states depend on all their resources coming from outside of the city for the most part. Um, they're they're not they're not sustainable entities. Um, so <clears throat> there's there's I think people are attracted to it, attracted to indigenous culture from that respect as well. So there's a lot of a lot of reasons why people went up there. Um, and then and then you know I think maybe the most fundamental reason is is to protect this environment, protect the earth. We know that these pipelines are always leaking, and when they leak, it's it's um, it usually it's they've usually the, what they find out is is that the, the leaks have been going on for a while and they only find out about it when it starts to actually show up and uh, specifically with respect to the Dapple pipeline which will be transporting fracked fracked oil there's all kinds of other nasty stuff that's in that and it makes it even more difficult to clean up and and they're doing it in such an irresponsible way they're 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 taking this pipeline underneath the Missouri River. They're 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 routing it right next to this lake that is the the water source for for Standing Rock. Um, when the, when they had it originally routed north of Bismarck, there was such a large outcry from the public that they switched it to the south part. And so when they say when they when the Dapple or any other energy company says that this that these these technologies are completely safe and that this these things don't Lake, it's a it's a complete lie. <laughs> it's it's just a huge huge lie. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why people are interested in indigenous culture, and I think there's I think I think we could everybody, regardless of this issue, could learn a lot from indigenous culture and the wisdom that they that they that they have. One thing that I find most fascinating about indigenous culture is this idea of the seven generations. So as a, as a living being, you think seven generations before you, and you think about the seven generations that come after you. So you honor your, you honor your ancestors, and you honor the people that are yet to come. And so that's where their concern for the environment really uh, is involved in that. Um, they also, what's interesting too is that a lot of people don't know this, but the founding, the the American, the, the founding of America and the drafting of the Declaration of Independence and the drafting of the Constitution was heavily influenced by political concepts of indigenous people. 
Um, Thomas Jefferson uh, was very interested in um, indigenous culture. He he had good relations with a number of uh, chiefs, a number of tribes, and um, and it's it's well known that that their the the uh, governing structures within the tribes was influential in the founding of this country. So that's um that's another very interesting thing that that uh, gets overlooked. In the past three months, it seems that we are just surviving the current state of affairs. Um, I decided to start interviewing remarkable individuals who have had experiences with intentional communities, communes, holistic living, or have lived off-grid in the past. Uh, you're one of the most ecologically-minded persons I know, and on one of your Facebook posts, you wrote the following. I see a worldwide awakening as to who we are as natural living beings on this planet. I see the current extremes of death, insanity, destruction, etc., as the catalyst that leads to our awakening. I have met many liberated beings in the last few months, and these meetings have given me a renewed spirit of hope and optimism. I see our indigenous relatives guiding us on our collective paths towards a collective evolution, spiritual, individual, and relational. I see the divine love that exists within each of us coming out of its shell. This is not an easy evolution, however, is what our hearts and souls desire. Please uh, give us some hope that we can cling to. Yeah, um, I am. I am. I am hopeful, um, and that's because I just I have to be. <laughs> Otherwise, I would just be very depressed and very cynical. And I've had I've had those times in my life as well. But taking part in in these in these uh, in these events and meeting and, and discussing with the people that I have, um, it it has given me a renewed hope. Uh, there are there are there's there's a growing percentage of the population which is becoming more and more aware of the fact that our government is not what we think it is. And, um, you know, you have, you have WikiLeaks and Assange and Snowden and, and all, all these uh, people, all these independent journalists who are, who are basically giving us the information and saying, hey, hey, your, your, your country is not what you think it is. Your government is not what you think it is. And so the question then becomes is what are we going to do about it? I don't think that playing the old game of electing this certain person or this other person is going to is going to do it. I don't think that that means that we should ignore that or not partake in that. But but um, I think if we, to the extent that we continue to do that is the extent to which we're we're providing this entity with with um, uh, legitimacy and power. And I don't think it deserves either one of those things. Um, we. What's interesting is, is that our country, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, it basically says that, that um, all rightful government, all legitimate government is based on the consent of the governed. Not, none of us, anybody alive today has ever had the consent to, has ever had the choice to not consent to our system. By virtue of being born within this territory, within this country, we are automatic citizens of and subject to this government. Um, and, and basically... When, when the founders formed this government, they, they formed it on the basis of consent. Um, and, and I don't think that our government has the people's consent. Um, if, you look at, if you look at the number of people who voted in the last presidential election, 19.2% of the voting population voted for Trump. 19.8% voted for Clinton. 22 to 23% uh, were, were, were eligible. Were, they were eligible to vote, but for whatever reason, they weren't eligible to vote in this election. So they could have voted, but for whatever reason, they weren't able to. 
and then 26% didn't vote. So 26%, the majority of, of that group, um, of that, you know, of, of those different groups did not vote. Some of those people didn't vote for principled reasons like myself. Um, I did not vote because I don't believe our, our system is legitimate and I see voting as a way of, of legitimizing it. I would imagine that the, the large, the large, the, the majority of that group didn't vote because they just don't care. But I think that that, I think that that communicates something. I think that most people, when they, when they watch politics or when they listen to politicians' speeches or when they went, when they get involved in politics, they, they have this feeling that it's all kind of like a show and game. And I think that's why mo a lot of people don't, don't particularly get involved or don't like to talk about it. And I think there's some wisdom in that because what we're realizing is, is that no matter how much we're involved, um, you know, no matter how much faith we put in these certain politicians and representatives, what we find out is that they just continue to do business as usual. And the reason for that is, is because it's not our government's been taken over. It's pretty obvious that our government has been taken over by um, a sophisticated criminal enterprise. And the thing is, is that is that this has been going on for a long time. You know, JFK and uh, Eisenhower and Roosevelt all had very interesting things to say about this this uh, this aspect of our government. And what's happening now is that the information that that um, is pretty much proving what they've said is is coming out in droves. It's not a secret anymore. So in that sense, I think that can provide us with a a catalyst for an awakening and, um, you know, and, and possibly leading to an actual movement of people away from this system, withdrawing their consent and forming their own associations. So, I mean, this is, it all sounds, it all, this idea that this is possible sounds crazy, especially in today's day and age, but what I've experienced, I think it is. I think it is a possibility. Whether it happens in our lifetime is an entirely different question. Um, but but the thing is, is that our system is is completely broken. The federal government is insolvent. Uh, um, if if the federal government were to apply the rules that it applies to other corporations and other entities, it would be bankrupt, and it would be forced to sell off its assets and and re and uh, reestablish itself in some way. Um, this, that's just one aspect of it. Our whole system, our whole economic system is also broken. Um, it depends on continuous growth. It can, it depends on continuously flooding the market with new money. Um, all these things can continue and, and no civilization on earth has ever escaped those dynamics there. And, and I don't think that we're any different. So we will experience a collapse of this system, um, both economically and governmentally. And my my feeling is is that is that we should, should begin to focus our efforts on what comes in its place, what type of system comes in its place. And I th I think what's happening now is because of the internet, there are disparate there are all kinds of disparate groups, disconnected groups that have similar affiliations but not completely. And so I don't think that it's ever going to be possible to unite a whole population of 330 million people behind a certain framework of political values. I think what, what you're going to have instead is, is decentralized 
um, open networks of different groups. Um, at what you're going to see a, a move away from centralization. And then that'll allow for, for experimentation and it'll also allow for people to find their, find their groups. And without centralization, then you don't have, you don't have the problem of, of huge wars. And you also don't have the problem of, 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 of corrupt groups being able to so easily take control of, a, of an entire system. The reason why the, the reason why the corrupt politicians or the corrupt corporate, uh, corporate interests, the military industrial complex, um, all these kind of evil, evil type entities or organizations within the government. The reason why they've been able to, to be as successful as they have is because there's only they only have to convince uh, like 535 people <laughs> ultimately um, out of a population of 333 330 million. So um, I think that as a part of this, you're going to see decentralization. Um, People are beginning to also wake up to the wake up to you know who they really are. Um, uh, we, we are you know we're living living human beings on, on this planet first, subjects and citizens of this nation state or that nation state sec second, members of this religion or that religion third, members of this family or that family fourth. As people awaken to who who they really are, powerful living beings. Um, that's going to allow. That's going to provide people with a, with a basis for owning their own lives, and with the, uh, with the philosophical understanding that that you have a right to determine who, and with what you associate with, and how you associate with it. And in our current system, we don't have that choice whatsoever. Right. And in this last fifteen minutes, can you describe how you got involved with the protests in D.C. and how did it come about? And what was it like to be there? Okay, so um, ever since I was at Standing Rock, I've been following every, all the developments and keeping in touch with, with the people that I met there. So I found out about the march uh, through those means. Um, as soon as I found out, I, I decided that I was going. Um, and I also knew some people from Omaha that were involved in the, the initial group that I went up that, with that were, that were planning on going. So um, I booked my ticket and... Um, I got a. I stayed at a hostel there, which which it was interesting. A lot of a lot of the people that were at the march ended up staying at the same hostel, so that was uh, that was cool as well. So yeah, I found out about it through that through that method. Um, I got up there on Tuesday. the The events started Monday. They uh, it was a part. It was led by the Indigenous Environmental Network, and this is basically a a, a group of younger of younger Indigenous people who. <laughs> who are, you know, they're activists for the environment and as and related to that, activists for native land uh, sovereignty rights over their, over their land. So um, they were, they led it. There was a delegation that came from Standing Rock and then there was, there were people that were coming up, coming from all the different um, pipeline protest camps that, that exist without the state. So you have, you have a number of these going on. Um, I wrote down some notes here. Um, you have um, you have the Diamond Pipeline in Arkansas, the Alanquin Pipeline in New England, and uh, these are the three big ones: the Sabal tri the Sabal tri uh, Trail Pipeline in Florida. Um, so there were a lot of people from these different uh, protest camps as well. And then we there was also quite a few um, 
quite a few groups from around the world. So you had some tribes from Alaska, some tribes from South America, some tribes from Canada, um, and then and then also just people from all over. I've, I've met people from from Germany, um, Italy, uh, all kinds of European nations. Um, you know, Africa, China. So this is a worldwide thing, and uh, it's it's really the the foundation of it is 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 the the indigenous leadership. It was it was incredible to be there. I, I heard some uh, pretty amazing speeches. I met some uh, like like I said, liberated beings who have a very good grasp uh, with relation to what I've been talking about with relation to how we can use these concepts of uh, individual human sovereignty and group sovereignty to to pull ourselves out of out of this system and thereby take away take away its power um, because as long as the system continues to exist this type of stuff is going to continue to exist and what's scary about now is is that they have the technology to work to the point where it's it's it would be almost humanly impossible to st- humanly impossible to stop it. so um you know the time is now <laughs> um and 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 the people that are involved in this understand that and the march itself was incredible we started at um we started at the government accountability office which i thought was a pretty appropriate spot to start um then we marched to uh, trump's tower or trump's international hotel that's across from the EPA in DC, so that was that worked out well, right between Trump and, and the EPA, and then we marched from there to the White House, and uh, they had a stage set up there in the park that's in front of the White House. Uh, they had some speakers and some performances. Um, Tulsi Gabbard uh, gave a gave an incredible speech there. So yeah, it was a very powerful experience. I think there was probably anywhere from a thousand to 5,000 people that showed up. Um, I, I think that a lot of the people there were hoping for more, but it was still a large presence. Um, all the coverage of it, just as all the coverage within Standing Rock has been through independent media and uh, social media. Um, I read an article today that basically said that the mainstream media and the White House and the government completely ignored the protests, which isn't a surprise, but it's unfortunate. So yes, this was incredible. I made some good connections, and I plan on continuing to travel to some of these different uh, uh, protest sites or protector sites. And um, I think the next one I'll be going to is is the the the, uh, the efforts involved with stopping the uranium mining in in um, um, at the Navajo Nation. So, and I might I might I'm also I'm also considering possibly helping out uh, with some of the cases that the ongoing uh, criminal cases up in North Dakota. On this new series uh, called Sojourners where we discuss um, you know, experiences that people have had in intentional um, living places, communities, communes, um, and even their own like mountain man experiences. Um, do you feel like you're getting a little bit of both worlds? Like, being um, having the ability to go from a remote area where you're in touch with nature and then go and get involved in, in politics and activism and and do a little bit of both yes yes i think 
I think that that it's good to have that balance. And for a while, I for a while in my in my darker years, I I almost uh, gave gave it all up and and moved down to South America to live in the jungle. I mean, I was pretty close to actually doing something like that, and I'm glad that I didn't because I think um, I think that balance balance is important um, because um, you know going going to one extreme or the other, I think in some ways is kind of an and um, escaping doesn't really work because it's impossible to escape this stuff. <laughs> uh, even if it doesn't directly affect you, it's still affecting you. And, um, and, and, you know, more importantly, it's affecting this earth, which we, is that which affects everyone. So, uh, uh, I think, uh, remaining, having a balance between those two worlds is important. And, and going into the woods and hiking and, and spending extended periods of time in nature uh, recharges the soul, and it gives you the strength to, to, to you know, come back into the city and, and take part in these types of things, or, or become engaged in the, you know, the political world. I, I guess you could say. What about the the sense of community? Uh, are you satisfied with going to uh, protests or? other people's camps and having experiences there and then staying in touch with people on Facebook. Is that enough of a community for you or is it kind of part of the, the struggle of the modern man that is, you can't have people like next to you that you share food with and stuff like that every day because of the limitations of how far everybody lives and like-minded people are hard to find. Yeah. I, there's just, that's a, there's a struggle in that. Uh, there's definitely a struggle in that. I, I think I think we all want community in some ways, but we don't know how to do it. <laughs> That's what I really think. Um, and and as with anything else, learning how to do that and 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 doing it well, um, that's a that's a multi generational thing. And I think that that's what that's another thing that has attracted people to indigenous cultures and indigenous peoples is that they have maintained these communities and these links and these traditions. In the, under the under the most extreme conditions, so they know how to do it, and and um, and it's a natural thing for them. So anybody who's interested in in community type living, there's a lot that we can learn from um, indigenous groups and indigenous people. Like tons of stuff that we can learn. And also, I think there is a, there's a certain there's a certain um, benefit that comes with seeing people for a while, being involved and engaged with them, and then. And then parting ways, and then reuniting. Um, if you're living in the same community, um, sometimes, sometimes that the maintaining good relationships can be a problem. Um, and, and and I also think that there's a there's something about diversity which is hard to get in in um, a lot of these kind of planned communities. So. Yeah, it's, I think I think with with modern technology and the fact that that we're as mobile as we are in today's age, um, it does allow for community outside of the the outside of, of what's considered to be a traditional community type setting. So, um, but with that said, I still would like to find a a good community someday. <laughs> so. So, so what would you say about people who are listening to the show and they want to go start their own intentional community or they want to join 
one that already exists. I know both of us have had a limited experience with an intentional community in Tennessee. What would you say to them um, in your experience? What kept you drawn to that? And in in because what I learned is there's different things that make people happy. So, and there's certain things that you need to be happy. So, do you feel that being in um, in a bigger city or in a town close to your family or having access to some intellectual resources or having a closer um, access to the Native American community? Like, what are the, the specific things that, that fill you up and that are needed? And then we would propose that for other people. It's like, first of all, I guess, figure out what you want and then try to connect all the dots. Is that what you would say? Yeah, um, it's a difficult thing to do because because we don't have the we don't have the benefit of of really growing up within. I mean, we we grow up within communities, but but they're not traditional. What we would quote unquote think of community like a more a more uh, um, connected, more um, more intimate type community setting and and um i think the farm the farm the farm had has that and had um i think the farm has that when when we were living there uh, we were going through some tough stuff as you know and i think that that made some of the stuff there more difficult but um one thing that that i that i really appreciate about larger cities is the diversity and when you're on a, commu- a small, like, intentional community, that that's really not a part of a part of it. I mean, you have you have diversity with res- you have some diversity with respect to maybe religious, spiritual, or political views. But um, but the, one of the things I enjoy the most about a big city is, is is walking walking down the street and and meeting people and talking with people from all over the world. Um, that that to me is is one of the most amazing things about a big city. Uh, um, beyond that, big cities, I just don't really <laughs> I can I can do them for a little while, but after a while, I get kind of claustrophobic and and um, I need I need nature. So, ideally, for me anyway, I would like to live somewhere that that is close to a big city, um, but like a big city with with a lot of diversity, but also um, is far enough away so that you can enjoy the, the peace and serenity of a natural environment. And then, as far as as far as living together in that type of environment in a community, I think the way that the way to make that work is that it has to be the best the best way the best. And I think that this is what the had what the farm had early on is is a core committed group that has. Um, commitments to certain principles and certain um, certain methods for it for manifesting what it is that they wish to manifest, and that 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 is a difficult thing to do because we it's it's we're coming up with it on the spot. Um, we're developing we're developing it as we go, and so we don't have the benefit of. I mean, there's a lot of good associated with that. 
but there's it's there's also a lot of challenges associated with that. Whereas within these indigenous communities, they've had these traditions and, and ways of relating um, that they've been maintaining for thousands of years. Um, so it's it's a very strong connection. And with these indigenous, with these you know, with starting a new t- intentional community or joining one that already exists. Um, you know, you experienced, we experienced it at the farm. Everybody has kind of a different different idea as to what it should be. And when you have small groups of people living together, what tends to happen is you tend to have the development of cliques. And, um, you know, so you have one clique that wants to know one thing and you have another clique that wants another. And it's interesting because what I, what I experienced in the farm is that, is that uh, I experienced human, human humanity on, in its, in, on a small scale, but all the dynamics that exist within the, the macro, I, I experienced those in the, in the micro. Uh, so I learned a lot from living there. And um, it's, it is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> it's not easy. But there's, I think there's def, it's definitely worth, worth trying and, and worth committing, committing yourself to. But living next to a, I think I think if the farm was probably like maybe twenty or thirty minutes away from Nashville, it'd be an entirely different place. And that's not I'm not I'm not trying to I'm not um, speaking negatively of of the people that live in that area. But I think for people who are interested in that type of living, having access to um, culture, uh, diversity, um, intellectual resources. Uh, all those things are very important uh, to 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 maintain something like that, um, and I th- I think that the fact that the farm is a good hour and a half away from the from Nashville, um, I think that definitely definitely has an impact um, on on the place. I know at least for me it it, it did have an impact um, because I didn't I could not relate to. I could not really relate to the people that, that in, in the surrounding communities. You know, we came from different worlds, and um, yeah. So it's 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 a challenge. So you have to. There's a lot of a lot of dynamics that you have to think about. Well, Ryan, I, I want to thank you for your time. I, I um, love you, man, and I'm happy that you are fighting the good fight and and. You know, representing all of us out there in, in the the world, please uh, keep us updated. And and it's great that you're also supporting them legally because sometimes the only way that you can fight these battles is through the courts and making sure that people's rights are being protected. Yes, thank you, brother. It was good talking with you. Take care, man. All right, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of the Mystic and the Skeptic. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page. We would like to thank Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance. The songs you hear on our introduction and finale are from the band The Ancient Gnostics. The first one is called Day by Day, produced by Hofke. The second one is called All Mine, and it's produced by Brotherhood.